Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 27th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, legal scholar, AEI person, fellow, uh, assistant professor of law, and the director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. That's many. That's the C. Boyden Gray, Antonin Scalia, George Mason, and his name is Adam White. Adam, thank you for being here representing C. Boyden Gray, Antonin Scalia, and George Mason, not to mention AEI. Hi, John. Oh, uh, and he's been, he was at the Hoover Institution, he was at the Manhattan Institute. Soon, there will not be a single institution in America of which he is not a fellow. So as somebody who has created, who is the sort of pl- platonic ideal of being a fellow, let me just ask you, given your uh, expertise on legal matters and your close study of the Supreme Court, Stephen Breyer, um, retired yesterday or announced his retirement yesterday by somebody kicking him in the ass downstairs before he was ready to make the announcement himself. Um, what do you, what's your, uh, what's your like one sentence take? Uh, yeah, let me put it this way. Bryce been on the court 28 years. I'm, I'm a lay person in this regard, but, um, has he written a single opinion that will endure? In other words, like a hundred years from now, people will say, well, that was the Breyer, you know, it's a, as the Breyer opinion in Pasquaxi versus Idaho, uh, you know, that was real. that really spelled out the really important view of the seventh amendment or so. Is there, is there such an opinion? No, there isn't. And I have to say you had me a platonic ideal. Uh, Breyer's record on the court is pretty mixed. And you're seeing this in the, 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 the obituaries to his judicial career, which are preceding his actual announcement of his departure. Um, everybody's calling him a pragmatist, which is a long way of saying uh, he says a lot before deciding in a pretty reliably liberal direction. But his opinions, his most consequential opinion might be the one where he wrote for the court striking down a state's partial birth abortion law or one striking down a, a Ten Commandments statue. But even those opinions were sort of so muddled and caveated. Frankly, Breyer's biggest legacy professionally probably won't even be as, as a justice on the court. It's what he wrote on regulation as a lawyer and a law professor. Before that, he wrote books on everything from regulation to FERC, the Federal Regu- Energy Regulatory Commission of all things. There he made some lasting contributions that'll probably stand the test of time, not so much on the court. And if I could just say one more thing, the departure, his, the, the, this departure of his, where he didn't even get to announce his own departure, is just the perfect capstone on his career. You look back at his actual announce when he was actually nominated in 94, Bill Clinton didn't wait for him to come to Washington before announcing his appointment. He announced it while Breyer was still up north. They had to have a whole second ceremony when Breyer made it down. I think the next day, Clinton went jog. He was supposed to go jogging without with Breyer but he couldn't find Breyer in the White House and he just ran off without Breyer. And there was an entire Washington Post story about this. And Breyer's entire career is basically a story of, of his own political party, Democrats, 
just having no patience for him and sort of abandoning him uh, at, at a moment's notice. I, you know, uh, apropos of nothing, you just remind me of the fact that Clinton made such a hash of his of his Supreme Court nominations. I mean, if anybody remembers, so, you know, his first year, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was yep. nominated to the court. And, you know, uh, he said, oh, here she is. And she's the first this and she's the first that. And then she came up and said, oh, I'm so bad. And then it was time for questions. And Britt Hume, who was then at ABC News, said, Mr. President, some people are feeling that you're out of touch or something like that. And Clinton said, I don't know how you can ask such a question after having heard what this woman just said and stormed off. And that was the end of the wondrous announcement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ascension to the Supreme Court. Uh, he uh, he had a he had a knack of uh, screwing things up. Trump, of course, did the come come at nine, nine p.m. on Thursday. Come on down. Johnny from The Price is Right is going to announce who the next Supreme Court nominee is, you know, like that. And and now we have uh, now we have Breyer sort of like, I mean, the fascinating thing was that uh, Shannon Bream of Fox, you know, everyone was like, oh, my God, Breyer's retired as a man. And Shannon was like, multiple sources are telling me that Stephen Breyer is not happy that this news got out this way. I mean, it is so disrespectful. I don't know. It's amazing. Well, Clinton even screwed up Breyer's nomination. That after Breyer got skipped for the Ginsburg seat, um, and that's where the whole Cuomo drama happened too. For the the seat that Breyer ended up getting, there was a protracted sort of public debate over whether it should be Bruce Babbitt or Richard Arnold from Arkansas, who Clinton endured. Nobody was satisfied with the Breyer nomination. Clinton clearly was not thrilled with it. Uh, Democrats in the Senate met the nomination with widespread disappointment. I personally, I like Breyer. There's sort of a charm to him. And I feel sort of sad for the, all the ways he's been mistreated. He was the junior justice for over a decade and had to answer the other justices' messages in the conference room. I mean, he's a sweet man and he has sort of a, a charm in his own sort of professorial way. But I can't think of another justice who was more disliked by his own party then maybe David, famously David Souter and now Chief Justice Roberts. But there's been just this low-key, passive-aggressive um, dislike of Stephen Breyer from even before he was put on the court. And so, again, this, the way he's being just shoved out um, is, is just the perfect capstone for his, uh, his career. You know, my friend David Fremlin on Twitter yesterday, having uh, himself uh, been, I guess, at Harvard Law, where Breyer taught and said he was really funny. And then he like put up three or four things that Breyer said. And as I told him in a private message, um, they, they, they weren't, they weren't funny. It was like art Buckwald funny or like, you know, dad joke funny. I don't know. It was like, so he really wasn't funny. He wasn't that impressive. He spent 20, he was, a, he had to answer other justices messages. The left doesn't like him. He can't even retire on his own. Never wrote an never wrote an interesting opinion. I mean, that's a long time to not write an interesting opinion. I mean, I'm sure there are other, you know, certainly in the course of the 19th century until until the sort of ascension of the modern court, where we really were, you know, every year saw massive constitutional arguments, really from the you know early 50s, late 40s, early 50s onward. Um, so in the 19th century, there were a lot of stumble bums and hacks and stuff on the Supreme Court who meant nothing, but it's a little rare to have somebody this intellectually marginal. I mean, I don't know yeah. exactly marginal, but 
Yeah, you know, there's an interesting trend for the last few, few decades. The senior most liberal becomes a real lion of the court, even people that were shrinking violets to begin with, right? Blackman becomes the senior most liberal and declares that he's on a crusade against the death penalty. Stevens becomes a, the, the leading liberal during the early Bush years. Then, of course, Ginsburg. Breyer, when, he, when Ginsburg passed away, I thought, oh, this will be interesting to see how Breyer sort of seizes the moment as the senior liberal on the court. And he just didn't. He got passed over, basically, uh, with, with Justice Sotomayor skipping ahead of him to become the sort of liberal lion of the Senate. And so he, 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 even in that role where he's teed up to be vocal, he just, he just briared his way through it. Can I can I just say one thing about because we were constantly scolded by the supposed party of governance, uh, uh, the Democrats, uh, and about norms, nor invoking the the decay of norms. The the way that his exit was dealt with in the last thirty six hours is kind of shameful in terms of norms. This guy had a, had many decades of service on the court, and whatever you think of his record, he deserved to announce his retirement when he was ready to announce it. And the idea that, which now seems more and more plausible, that it was leaked, you know, he decided, but he would likely, as most justices who announce a retirement, do it in the spring because the term ends in the summer. You know, so he could complete his job without the the distractions and hassle of of a, of a nominee in the background. The fact that he wasn't allowed to do that, the, the, the clear pressure that Democrats feel and the very political motivation of that leak is, is sort of distressing to me in the same way that I think it's been distressing over the last 20 or 30 years to see how politicized the whole nomination and confirmation process has become. And both, both sides have participated in that, obviously. But this is kind of new, right? This is new. All the other retirees were able to announce on their own timeline for their own reasons. And I feel like this is, this is it's a small thing, but, it, but it's notable. It is. It is. And of course, it doesn't, you know, this is something that will only be remembered by, you know, by uh, by by fanboys and people who remember what happened when Clinton nominated Ginsburg and Brit Hume asked the question like this is uh, this is, you know, stuff for, you know, massive trivia. Like how, how did Stephen Breyer retire? He got, you know, there was a leak about it that 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 seemed uh, inclined seemed present to sort of attempt to change the subject from the unbelievable constant spate of bad news that biden got and there is now finally joe biden gets another good piece of good news it's not just the briar retirement which allows him to nominate someone and get a whole new set, set of news stories there is a blockbuster gdp number fourth quarter gdp at almost seven percent six point nine percent which i think they were expecting somewhere in the fives, which already would have been like an amazing number, but seven percent is um, is pretty staggering, and uh, and it will be. Uh, it's not that surprising when you think about everything that was going on before, you know, before sort of Omicron scared everybody. I mean, there was just explosive job growth, explosive wage growth, um, and of course, just all that money that had flown, you know, that 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 had been poured down the national gullet by by Washington you know, had its intended effect, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sugar high. It's not going to last, but it, you know, it's, it's still pretty impressive. And this is going to be a real test of whether Biden can do something to shake the national mood out of its torpor and belief that everything is terrible and going wrong. This is a communications issue for him now because he has a just incredibly solid piece of news that he can, he can, can't can't reset everything but you know he can certainly do something with it 
Yeah, I don't think it's a communications issue at all. Um, <clears throat> GDP growth is completely abstract. It's an academic concept for average voters. What's tangible, what they feel, uh, is the reduced purchasing power that they have as a result of inflationary pressures in the economy. That's very real. That's a policy problem. That's not a communications issue. He can talk up the GDP all they want, but that's not going to matter to Americans who are feeling it in their pockets. I think it matters in this sense. I think it matters because it gives some ballast to the idea that we have been saying for, that he needs to say we have come through a dark tunnel and we are heading toward a positive future, a message that he keeps stepping on himself by saying the next election may not be legitimate and, you know, and, and look at what's going on with all these evil Republicans and uh, keep wearing your mask and everything like in that sense, you're right that people have their own personal experience of the economy. And it's, it's, it's important to note that, um, and that, you know, inflation is a serious problem, but tied to a message of optimism and forward-looking hope uh, based on solid data, uh, it's, it is a communications matter because it, it, it's something that it can't be like left to float out on its own. Look at our GDP number. It's so great. GDP, GDP. And no one even knows, you know, I'm sure 50% of the public or 60 or 70% couldn't define the term GDP. It's funny because when I was a kid, it was GNP. I don't know when it when it turned to GDP. It's like when they changed Peking to Beijing. I, I, you know, I never understood how that happened exactly. Suddenly, it's like, you know, you know, now we are all for my entire lifetime, Kiev was pronounced Kiev, and now it's pronounced Kiev. So that happens. But GDP uh, becoming not GNP was an interesting moment. I'm sorry, I'm being very dilatory here. Um, but I do think that there is something to the notion that this is one of those moments that you could use to do some kind of a, an emotional reset. Say we are come, we've come through a dark tunnel. We have the highest growth number that we've seen in. 27 years, I think. I mean, it, probably since Clinton in the first quarter of 1996. And I just see this as all so much far. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but I see this as far too much more risky <laughs> as a to view this as solely a communications problem. Because the corollary to that is that Americans are just too damn stupid to know how great everything is right now. I mean, that is the the logical basis un that would underlie an approach that says, OK, well, Americans who are sour on the economy just don't understand that the economy is great. And they just need to be talked into it and explained into it. And if they don't understand, you need to grab them by the lapels and yell at them. No, but you, you see what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying I see the frustration the on that end building on the right. left that these people just can't be led to water. No, I understand. But I'm not saying that he should make the message about the economy. I'm saying he should say Omicron is burning through. Omicron is burning through. Take your masks off. I mean, I'm, I'm saying he couldn't just use that and do nothing else. But as a as an as a as a possibility for them to sit down and, you know, in 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 the Roosevelt room and close the door and say, what are we going to do here? We're on the downward slide. I'm at 35% in Georgia, which I won in 2020. My approval rating is 35% in Georgia. We have good news. We have good news on the, on the, on the virus. We're not peddling it. We have good news on the economy. All we do is whine about voting. Let's say something to the American people that might connect to them about how 
the future is going to be better than the most recent past. I, th- I think it's um, it's extremely good news for him and, 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 and could be used quite effectively, particularly because it stands in such stark contrast to all the other news. So it sticks out. Um, and it wouldn't be uh, thought of as purely abstract, by the way, if it were bad, right? If it were bad, everyone would be taking it as, oh, my God, here's another sign of, 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 the, of the misery. Uh, it just gets worse. So I, I think it can be capitalized on to some extent. It can be. I think there's every reason to be incredibly skeptical that they will or that they will know how to do it or that they won't do it the way that Noah says they'll do it and make it worse by saying you're a bunch of idiots. You know, don't you know how wonderful everything I've done for you is, which is exactly right. It's and as we've talked about before, there's no vocabulary for optimism because the progressive base is not optimistic. Right. They're easily pessimistic about the future. And there's a parallel here to how what they're doing with this opportunity with the nominee right now to the Supreme Court, which is they literally don't understand that saying, and now we can now we can nominate a black woman to the court rings differently. Sorry, that's my dog in the background. I apologize. Uh, it, it, it basically reminds a lot of moderate and Republican voters of of the identity politics that's so entrenched in the Democratic Party right now. So they see this as a big opportunity, but they're squandering it already with the way they've chosen to approach the, the nominee. Which, by Look, the way, I just have to say, yeah. I'm, there are so many qualified African-American female jurists who would be great to put on the court. And everything about how they're approaching this undermines that those qualifications and their ability. And it drives me absolutely mad. So there, I've got that off my chest. <laughs> I mean, I am. I mean, I think what's interesting, <laughs> Adam, is that... Um, uh, Biden has no choice. Uh, this was a campaign b- behind the, you know, uh, in the smoke filled room agreement with Jim Clyburn when Biden was on, you know, looked seemingly sort of on the ropes uh, during the primaries. And he wanted this very, you know, heartfelt endorsement from Clyburn in South Carolina. And Clyburn said, promise that you'll make an African-American woman your first Supreme Court nominee. And Biden said, done. And he did it. And so that's where he is. Can we talk about the unbelievable irony that he has basically said very specifically that he is making a token choice to the Supreme Court? And I think that it is more likely than not that sometime in July, June, July, or August, we are going to hear from the Supreme Court that affirmative action is no longer uh, I mean, what, what is uh, that the Harvard case or what, that 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 yeah. affirmative action will be deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, I, I expect the Supreme Court will will say that affirmative action is. I mean, for the state school, unconstitutional for the private school, you know, contrary to the Civil Rights Act. Um, and yeah, there is a real irony that that case will be. Uh, well, no, that case is going to be argued in the fall, though. So that oh, is. Oh, I'm that, sorry. Right. Yeah, OK, yeah. So, so that so one the new justice will may or may not be on the court by then. But yeah. But, you know, I was talking to a reporter last night was asking me about the, the pledge and and I'm. I'm, I think diversity on the court is a good thing. And like Christine said, there's plenty of qualified judges of every you know, race and ethnicity in America. The, 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 that's not a problem. Pre-committing becomes a little strange for the reason you identified, John. But also, as I said to the reporter, when, President, when candidate Biden announces that the next candidate will definitely be a black woman, he's also announcing the next candidate will definitely not be an Asian woman or an Asian man. And it's just so strange how, how a lot of people don't hear that message 
um, because they're so focused on on wanting the, the black woman on the court. They don't realize how how alienating this is to other Americans. We'll see how it how it plays out. But yeah, the irony that it came out just as the court announced the affirmative action cases is pretty palpable. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to dip back into, you know, trivia, trivia history yet again, but, um, we of course do have the, to show, show you how not everything is equal in the, the eyes of, of the elites. Um, we of course have the counterexample from the 1990s of Miguel Estrada, uh, appointed to a circuit court. Yeah, he was going to the D.C. Circuit. He was going to the D.C. Circuit. Miguel Estrada, brilliant young Republican lawyer, uh, appointed and um, denied, uh, filib- effectively filibustered uh, for a year until he withdrew his nomination um, on the almost explicit grounds. And I can't remember who said this, but on the explicit grounds that uh, if he got on the circuit, he would end up on the Supreme Court. That would mean that. Republicans would be able to nominate the first Latino to the Supreme Court. He had to be denied his run up, you know, his sort of uh, uh, what would you call on deck circle appointment to the D.C. Circuit. And uh, otherwise, he would be Clarence Thomas uh, 2.0 because that's how Thomas ended up on the court. Right. He went to the D.C. Circuit for what a year, less than a year or something before he was nominated to the highest court. And and they they uh, filibustered. They wouldn't allow a vote on on Miguel Estrada. Um, uh, tragedy then ensued. His wife committed suicide. I mean, I don't think you can blame her suicide on. Uh, you know, I'm sure it wasn't helped. Whatever, but um, but uh, and here we are, like 30 years later, and it's perfectly okay that the people who are being banned, whose names are being bandied about, are being bandied about solely and exclusively because they check off two boxes that Biden promised he would check off. I mean, it's, it's condescending. It's, it's, it's cringe inducing. And it is a very bad sign about, you know, where the, where the liberal elite is that they have basically now descended into absolute open, unapologetic and undeniable tokenism as their strategy um, or balkanization or whatever you want to call it. I don't think it's a strategy. They, it's a, it's an honest view. They're acting in good faith. They believe it's a moral imperative. You know, they're constantly shocked to discover that conservatives don't appreciate or like racial quotas, and I think that they're being dishonest when they feign, uh, you know, some sort of uh, shock over over Republicans finding that distasteful. But they, it's not a strategy, in their in that sense. They they honestly believe this is historically right it's it's rectifies historical injustices they they believe it's a it's reparative it's also when a, Clar- dis- yeah, it, i was just gonna say to add to that it's also a distressingly popular view among younger americans there's some new polling data out of and one of the questions that was asked this is a sort of free speech polling they said you know many younger americans said they were willing to have to censor their own speech or not say certain things at, or possibly even you know lose jobs as a that was worth it if it protected historically marginalized groups and the idea that you know it's a, it's not just that it's 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 popular right now among the liberal elite it's it's actually becoming a popular view among younger americans that it's okay to sacrifice some of the things 
that I think even modern liberals have taken for granted, like free speech and, and, and being able to say controversial things if it protects minority groups and historically uh, marginalized groups. So it doesn't even apply to people who today might be quite successful, but have a certain skin color that, that links them to a historically oppressed past. That's disturbing to me too, but this is actually an expression of that. It, it is going, it's quite popular among a growing group of younger Americans. Adam, the last time, that I believe it was the last time that the Supreme Court took a major affirmative action case and decided it, uh, it literally featured a kind of theoretical end date for affirmative action, right? Yeah. Yeah, this was uh, 2003. Uh, Justice O'Connor in writing for the court said, you know, we're, we're not, it's not time to end affirmative action yet. Surely 20 years from now you know, we'll be at that point, which by the way, 20 years from now is next year, which is when this, these affirmative action cases. Well, so it'll be, be so it'll be, not, it'll be 19 years. And, you know, therefore, obviously we didn't reach, you know, the, if you're really going to be Talmudic about it, you know, we didn't, yeah. we should, case should have been brought next year so that it would be 20 years according to the. Yeah. John, you're such a pessimist. There's a, it means we got there sooner. This is wonderful. Well, no, but I mean, the point I'm bringing up, the reason I bring it up is that, um, uh, the idea was that affirmative action was a was a potential remedy for past discrimination and that it therefore there was a reason to privilege it in whatever limited way you could without totally stepping on the rights of of others uh, privilege um, uh, African-Americans because of the legacy of slavery um, but that, you know, uh, and that because we only really got started on that in 1954, not in 1863, um, you know, a couple of generations and trying to see how things worked, you know, in the larger spread in higher education, all of that um, was was very important. Um, but it was always understood that it was not to be a permanent feature, at least in this context, it could not be a permanent feature of American life because it was a remedy and it was not, it was not to become enshrined as a kind of right um, that you as a, as, a, as a person with black skin uh, would get some kind of a vague, since you couldn't, you couldn't enumerate it, you couldn't do this, and could, that it could be used as a positive factor for you that it was not for people who did not have your skin color and that that remedy was limited and was time limited simply by dint of the fact that we would be 80 years after, after Brown, after Brown v. Board and after de school desegregation, after all of the civil rights and the civil rights act and the voting rights act and all of that. It gets back to the point a moment ago about the economy. It is just the tendency on the left to never be able to declare victory, right? To never say the crisis is past. So just as the economic problems are forever, the pandemic is forever, uh, the, the problems that affirmative action was created to solve will never actually be solved because that would then put an end to the crisis. Um, so it's it, what was the book from years ago by William Vogley, uh, Never Enough, right, uh, on uh, on progressive welfare programs. It's it's like that with affirmative action, just as it is with uh, with the economy. Well, it's worse. I mean, Christine, it's worse, right? I mean, that's the, the, the logic of the 1619 project is if this is American original sin from which we have not emerged, there, there, there can never be an end because the, because the, um, the handicap is, uh, is, is 
rooted in the very you know d- DNA of American history, and therefore you correct for it forever. Right. Well, and it also overlooks periods in, the, in America's more recent past where minority groups have actually excelled. So, you know, for example, on on the I'm obviously focused on these uh, on schooling. Uh, when you look at the sort of competitive high schools and the tests that, that kids have to take to get into those, you know, 20 years ago, there were more kids who were getting into those schools from minority groups. And now that's dropped. And there are lots of explanations for that. The main one being that, you know, uh, private schools are actively recruiting some of those kids that used to go to these uh, admit, admission only public high schools. So there's lots of reason for it. But to argue that it's been this just steady, constant uh, oppression and inability of minority groups to achieve is just wrong. It's wrong. The same thing is true with crime rates. With If you look at all the things that are constantly cited by folks who want that consistent oppression narrative to be true, even though it's not, they overlook all those moments of success. And that's true of small business success among minority groups. I mean, all there, there are plenty of really good optimistic stories to tell. And I will say it's the fault of conservatives and the Republican Party in general that they don't tell those stories often enough either, because there's a real opportunity now, particularly among Hispanic and Asian Americans who are looking for a political home and they're not seeing it entirely in the Democratic Party anymore. There is opportunity there um, on the right. They don't always seize it. So uh, I just think that there's is very the narrative of oppression, unfortunately, is like I said, very popular among the young, um, and it's something that needs constant combating because it won't end. And we'll see it more and more often enshrined in policy and law if it isn't. So Adam, let's let's move on to the question of who will replace Breyer. And I, let me just put it this way: Does it matter? Does it matter? We're getting a trade. Well, liberal for a liberal court is basically five, three, one. If you think Roberts is kind of now less of a, you know, conservative or whatever. So it's six, three or it's five, three. It'll be six, three after after Biden gets his nominee, assuming he gets his nominee. Does it matter? I mean, it could be could be uh, could be Jackson. It could be uh, Kruger. It could be somebody. You know, it could be Cheryl and Ifill. It could be uh, whoever. Um, does it does an individual justice matter in this kind of atmosphere? I think so. Um, an individual justice has a has a platform to really rally both the legal community. And the, uh, the the political community, we saw this with with Justice Ginsburg. We see it with Sotomayor, and so sure, if President Biden appoints somebody who turns out to be much much more outspoken uh, on the bench, off the bench, uh, is able to phrase her points and her, her themes much more succinctly than Breyer's sort of meandering, caveat written opinions and oral argument questions. Yeah, I think it could have a, a galvanizing effect in some ways. It's not going to change the, the balance of the court, obviously, in, in the short term. Um, and it's a it's a trade of one Democratic appointed justice for another. So you don't get the sort of the, the, the claiming of a seat away from conservatives. But I think this person could have a real impact on the political dynamic around the court. And, and God help us if the next nominee gets on the court and actually endorses court packing, right, um, in the way that Breyer and Sotomayor didn't, that would that would have an effect, too. So the, the, the individual not there seems to be a kind of interesting, um, I would call it. Um, wonk versus non wonk fight already starting to break out a little bit that the um, that the kind of wonk 
Washington, you might call it the sort of like drinking wine in a plastic cup at the Brookings Institution crowd um, has already decided that what who they like is the Harvard, Yale, Deputy Solicitor General. Uh, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember her her first name. Uh, uh, Kruger, who is a Leandra Kruger, Leandra Kruger, who is a who is a justice on the California State Supreme Court, um, but has one of those, you know, glittering resumes, three clerkships, you know, blah blah blah, you know, just oh, just amazing and. What a, you know, I'm sure everybody's friend, everybody went to law school with her and she went to retreats with them and all of that. And, um, and that does not appear to be the case in the same way with, um, with the other leading candidate who was on the DC circuit, whose name is Katanji uh, Jackson. Katanji Brown Jackson. Yeah. Katanji Brown Jackson. So uh, do you, am I, am I perceiving this correctly that, that, uh, that, you know, um, uh, Brookings wants the, you know, Brookings wants the black female version of the person whom liberal elites always want is the person that they were in Elliott House with. Yeah, that that sounds about right to me. And I think it's interesting the stories that have come out that that Leandra Kruger turned down, you know, a job as Solicitor General. She she wanted to stay on the Supreme Court and sort of bulking up her credibility as being almost too good for the, you know, being in a position to say no to being solicitor general. Katanji Brown Jackson, it's been interesting how she's been framed as the safe choice, right? She was confirmed for this DC circuit seat. I, I don't the vote in front of me. I think it was 53 to 44. Three Republicans voted for her. She was on the district court for years. She was on the sentencing commission for years. She was a briar clerk. It's almost like picking Kavanaugh again, right? The sort of the, the well-credentialed um, DC circuit judge who clerked for the one who's, who's leaving. Um, so that's, uh, that's a possibility. The other one, by the way, that's in the mix, uh, in addition to Sherilyn Eiffel, the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, it's, it's Michelle Childs, uh, who's a Clyburn protege. She was a district judge uh, down in a federal district judge down in South Carolina for a long time. She was just appointed on Christmas Eve Eve for the DC or nominated for the DC Circuit. So that it's pending there. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of a hearing she gets because she's Clyburn's person. But no, I if I had to bet, I'd bet it's it's Katanji Brown Jackson. But you're right. It's interesting that she's already been treated as, as sort of the, the settling choice uh, because she's confirmable. <laughs> Look, uh, Adam Kruger has sided with conservatives on occasion, has she not? Yeah, I'm not sure. Anybody who says they know her record inside and out is totally lying at this yeah. point because 99.9% of America of even lawyers don't know anything about her until yesterday afternoon. Yeah, well, listen, I certainly don't know everything. I yeah. certainly don't know her record inside and out. But um, I have read that she has sided with conservatives on, 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 on big decisions before, which would lead me to believe that given the climate we're talking about, that's an absolute non-starter. I... <clears throat> that is the interesting question here is when you go with with a an explicitly racial and gendered choice how much can you criticize the choice if you are on on, on the progressive left i mean you've already kind of limited your options because you've already said that the most important thing that matters is, you know, what what chromosomes you have and what color your skin is. Oh, I think if there's a hint of, of conservatism anywhere, 
you can criticize it endlessly. I'm saying if that's, Biden that's, that's, were a, that's a special her, offense. Right. If Biden were to name somebody who sided a little and by the way, there's also grounds on which you could say, yeah, maybe I don't know who Ari Berman or, you know, or Ellie Mistal or some, you know, some psychopathic lunatic uh, you know, on 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 the left, uh, you know, Mark Joseph Stern or something could pluck this out and say Biden is, but having somebody who has uh, of whom a conservative or two might have mildly nice things to say and who can like go to the Senate meetings and charm people in some way. I mean, Elena Kagan did that. That was it's very central to Elena Kagan's acceptability as a candidate, that she was somebody who had been known to treat conservatives on the Harvard Law School faculty with respect and that there was almost no organized opposition to her on the part of the right um, because she had very consciously uh, kept her powder dry and been, you know, and been sociable with everybody. Right. And so Biden is in a worse position, certainly than, you know, Obama was uh, in, you know, in when when he named uh, it was Obama who named Kagan. Right. I'm not being stupid here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, Obama had a l- way more senators than Biden has. Um, and uh, I don't know. So that's my that, that would be my, my question is, would it really be bad if he chose somebody who was more acceptable to the if he played a slightly bipartisan card in 2022? I know I know who wouldn't like it. But I mean, Republicans have already signaled that this is a a done deal, that this is a very low stakes fight. Elections have consequences. Lindsey Graham, you know, in particular, among others, that judiciary is not going to put up a struggle unless this is a really problematic nominee. And the two women we've discussed who are already on the bench are confirmable because they've been confirmed. Um, It's not going to be a big a big struggle, a big fight. Everybody can posture and, and take the win, take the easy loss, because it's not going to change the ideological makeup of the court. If progressives were to really mount a fight about this, and there's no, you're, you're right, I hadn't thought about this, that it's entirely possible that they could frustrate Joe Biden's agenda yet again uh, in pursuit of some uh, unrealizable, perfect outcome. Um, it, would, it would really throw a wrench in the works because Republicans are signaling that this is not a fight they want to have. Well, you'll have to, there are two different kinds of Republicans here, Adam. Not right? a real fight, have, I should say. I'm sorry. No, you have you have the you have Senate Republicans. <laughs> you have Senate Republicans who will probably not put up much of a fight, but there is an entire Republican fundraising, you know, p- p- private public apparatus um, that you know wants to raise a hundred million dollars off this, right? Well, I mean, sure. yeah, surely, surely, and there are members of the Senate Judiciary Committee who will use this as a as a, a stage for the possible presidential run in the future. But one thing to keep in mind is Republicans weren't even hard on Sotomayor, right? Or Ginsburg, or actually, brought, I mean, Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, or Breyer. The only, the only judicial no, Supreme Court nominee that Republicans have really created was Harriet Myers. Um, they just haven't picked fights the same way the Democrats have. And it's been interesting watching the, the first 18 hours of narrative spin out about what the Senate fight will be look like will look like and worries that Republicans will play hardball. They've been pretty easygoing on the Democrats Supreme Court nominations. And we could see all out war over this one, but I I don't see 
Senate Republicans putting up a huge fight on this. They'll make some noise, but at the end of the day, Biden's nominee is almost surely going to get confirmed and we'll probably get a couple of Republican votes, including Susan Collins. And that was before the, you know, when the 60 vote threshold was in place. Again, with the, the lower threshold, again, the stakes are far lower. Um, am I misremembering or speaking of Sotomayor, wasn't the main criticism of Sotomayor, didn't it come <laughs> from Jeff Tubin? Am I uh, in the New Yorker? Am I am I misremembering that whether it was before or after her nomination that there was a that there was a really quite uh, quite uh, eye eye opening, jaw dropping piece about how she was intellectually unfit for the court? I, yes, and I can't remember if it was before or after. But the other the other attack on that wasn't Sotomayor. a right with no right winger going after her for being stupid. That was that was you know that was our Zoom's best friend. Yeah, well, and I think if I remember correctly. There was the letter from Larry Tribe to President Obama lobbying for Elena Kagan. And if I, it's been a year since I've gone back to look at that letter. But if I remember correctly, uh, Tribe ran Sotomayor down in that letter, too. He also ran down Stephen Breyer, by the way, uh, in that letter. Again, once again, Breyer has no friends on the left, not even Larry Tribe. But no, uh, that is true. Time and time again, these attacks do primarily come from the left. I mean, that that that's funny because that... <laughs> That reminds me, the uh, tribe uh, complaining about Breyer reminds me of a, of a, of a moment on the, on the right, because, of course, this is where you get into interesting uh, dynamics of these, you know, tiny little worlds where uh, when Bob Bork was up for the Supreme Court, um, my old professor at the University of Chicago, Phil Curland, who was a who was a conservative, opposed his nomination. <clears throat> and why? Sheer envy. Choking, rageful envy. Like there was no, it made no sense. His opposition made no sense. It was sort of like, why is that guy getting it and I'm not getting it? What the hell is going on? And it reminds me of another somebody I will not name, but somebody, a, a legal scholar on the right, who uh, many years after uh, Scalia was was on the court, uh, but someone who had taught with him uh, said, you know, Nino wasn't a, a third rate third rate intelligence second rate i mean he just he was just such a couldn't really write you know but he's such a good politician such a good politician he just sucked up to everybody and yeah. you know and, and got the job this guy who was you know maybe the one of the two or three best writers ever to ever to sit on the supreme court uh, again choking rageful envy and you can never underestimate the possibility that somebody who went to law school with one or the other people could just do whatever they could to destroy them because it's like, what you know, why her and not me? Well, and I, by the way, I did look up that that tribe letter just now, and it's yeah. even better than I remember. <laughs> he says to this letter to President Obama, this is again about Sotomayor, bluntly put, she's not nearly as smart as she seems to think she is, and her reputation for being something of a bully could make her liberal impulses backfire and simply add fire to add to the firepower of the Roberts Alito Scalia Thomas wing of the court. Um, so that, that's, that's that an interesting, way of, interesting, way of, uh, interesting way of putting it. That's the only intelligent wrong. thing Larry <laughs> Tribe has ever said, as far as I can tell. Um, there is the Twitter. envy. There might've been the envy thing there too. I mean, not just that yeah. Tribe himself was passed over, but here you had Tribe lobbying for his colleague, former colleague, Elena Kagan to get the job. And this is yeah. part of what makes the Supreme court fights so fun is they can be fought at the national level and also at the faculty meeting level. It's uh, <laughs> it's a good time. Um, 
so that but in that sense, that's why I say does of course it matters. It always matters who who is, you know, an important unelected official who can serve until they die if they so choose. Of course it matters. But um in terms of uh of the um you know Solomonic decisions that are gonna have to be made, and obviously uh, at least one of them, the the abortion, uh the abortion ruling comes this year. So it uh uh, you know, it will not play a, a, a role here, but um, so of course it, it matters. But in in strict ideological compositional terms, unless a liberal suddenly has some reason to be the Kennedy suitor type, or you know, maybe what Roberts is becoming now, sort of like to grow in office toward the right, uh, they seem. That does not seem to be an issue with them ever. I mean, when we had the COVID hearing, uh, you know, the sort of the uh, OSHA emergency ruling stuff, why why was it totally axiomatic and turned out to be the case that the liberals were going to side with the you know OSHA rules and the conservatives were not? Why? I mean, that does that is not an ideological. That is all about over the question of whether or not boundaries were being overstepped in terms of in terms of, uh, you know, the use of, reg- you know, a regulatory framework. And yet here they were, like, just lining up perfectly attuned because that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, this is another way that I think unintentionally really demeans a lot of members of the court. Anytime you have a major case, everybody, the press and everybody just takes for granted the, the Democratic point of justice is we'll all vote in a certain direction. And the only interesting question is which of the conservatives will disagree with one another. Um, a few years ago, before she died, Justice Ginsburg gave an interview where she she said something just amazing. She said, you know, we've we the progressive justices have learned that it's more effective to often speak in a single voice, not fracture amongst ourselves, but really offer a solid four vote dissent together. And that was an amazing thing for a justice to say. Um, but she said it pretty proudly. The interesting there, there I don't expect any big shifts from left to right among the sitting justices. What will be interesting, I think, is the extent to which Democratic appointed justices try to speak um, textualism as a first language. This is something that that, that really distinguishes Kagan, say, from Sotomayor. She really does try to meet the conservatives, at least rhetorically, on their own ground and, and sort of argue within the bounds of textualism, not exclusively, but significantly. Souter did this a little bit, but Kagan really is the first Democratic appointed justice in the modern era to speak textualism as a first language. And it's forced conservative justices to think a little bit harder, I think, or a little bit more precisely about what exactly they're doing and saying. It's cre- I think it helps to create interesting fractures among the conservatives, say in the, the Bostock um, sexual orientation, gender identity case. And so that's one place where Biden's pick could really make a difference if he picks a justice who is more of the, the Kagan style in, in, in meeting conservatives on the grounds of textualism, or if it's more of the Sotomayor um, style, that, that could have an impact on the way that the court's decisions come out, even when the, that justice is still dissenting in the end. I mean, that's obviously something that we will simply not know until someone is on the court for a couple of years. There is no way to discern it from the hearings. There's no way to tell it from past acts or, you know, um, 
obviously we know no longer uh no longer legal intellectuals almost never get appointed to anything anymore after the bob bork fiasco because bork's views were on paper in books and in magazine articles and things like that and columns and you could pluck out one sentence and you know go go to town and so that's another reason why katanji jackson may be the maybe the leading candidate is that she hasn't she hasn't even written an opinion on the on the on the dc circuit so this is perfect it's like uh, david Souter said that he had never not only had he never had a conversation about abortion not only had he never ruled on abortion he had never thought about he had never had a thought about abortion the man literally testified that he had never had a thought about Abortion. I just want people to remember that uh, that actually happened in in America in 1990 or whatever. One another another great legacy of the supposedly great George H. W. Bush presidency. Just uh, to be safe, he didn't even think about thinking about abortion. He yeah, I mean, to be it, very careful. It, it it was it was one of the the only other staggering moment I remember was when a, a Treasury official named Josh Steiner. Uh, caught having had his diary subpoenaed. Um, I can't remember what the specific element was, but his diary had been subpoenaed, and it featured some statement about something that he had he had contradicted uh, in his uh, you know in his testimony, and then he said that he had lied to his diary, which which legally got him off the hook because he said, "Look, I lied in my diary." You can't prove I didn't. And they're like, what do you mean? Who, who lies in their diary? I lied in my diary. What are you going to say? I can't lie in my diary. That would, that was that. And a uh, suitor's, uh, you know, never, never having thought about abortion in his entire life. Now, fair enough. He lived with his mother. There's no indication he ever had a relationship with anybody. So he never had any practical reason to think about abortion, but nonetheless. Okay. But great- yeah. I- I think it's very sweet that you think it's sort of shocking, but to get a position on the Supreme Court nowadays, and actually Elena Kagan was one of the few to notice this early on, the 10-year-old who one day wants to be a Supreme Court justice, he or she right now is lying to his or her diary. Like that's <laughs> happening because that's all like it, this, the, the strategic and professional negotiating that goes on for a lot of these folks is now pretty obvious. She was extremely strategic in her in her, her entire life. Yes. Her, her, she lived a very, very strategic life, as, by the way, did Brett Kavanaugh, who I think never really expected that his his uh, his behavior as a 15 year old would somehow figure prominently in his, you know, in his uh, in his hearing, um, you know, because now. Yeah. Now you really do have to, you know, pre-plan, obviously, back to your third or fourth grade. Make get off decision. Instagram, kids. Get off Instagram if you exactly. want to be a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> there was so a great Adam, article. Oh, yeah. sorry. No, there was, you, there was a great article 20 years ago in the late great New York Observer called uh, The Little Supremes, where they actually interviewed these up and coming lawyers who desperately wanted to be Supreme Court justices. And I try to go back to that article about once a year just to teach myself a little humility um, and, and the ability to, to, to shut up every once in a while. Is that... Uh, is any of them on the short? Is any of them shortlisted? No, no, and probably <laughs> because they were in that article. <laughs> Adam, um, w- w- give a, give us a sense uh, based on what you've been hearing or talking about about what 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 happens now. I mean, I, I evidently, I mean, I would I tend tended to think that you couldn't really 
formally nominate someone or have hearings for someone until until a resignation was in effect. But um, I gather that's not really the case. And obviously, we have had cases where there was a hearing for Colin Powell uh, to be confirmed as Secretary of State uh, in 2000, uh, even you know just after uh, the court ruled on Florida and before before uh, Madeleine Albright was out of office. So are we going to get hearings sooner rather than later, do you think? Uh, yeah, there will be hearings. And, and by the way, Breyer said he'll retire effective upon the, 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 the confirmation of his successor, which has been done, which, which was, I think, common, actually. So it's not a problem to do the hearings before the retirement. It would be strange to do the hearings before Breyer announces his retirement, but I, but who knows? <laughs> Maybe Democrats will do that. Well, we're told he's going to announce his retirement today. But here's an interesting thing: so he would he would retire upon the uh, appointment of his successor, right? Right. Or the confront. Well, what does that mean for the decisions in June if they have hearings too soon? I mean that they, we're talking about like the abortion hearing. That like does he? Yeah. Has that been done? I don't. It's what I understand. If he retires, yeah. have they already voted on the on those cases? Have the opinions been assigned, or does that happen later? Can can an can an opinion be issued with his decision on it if he's already retired? No, no, and that's one of the reasons why I think the Democrats don't realize what they stepped into when they raced to pre-announce his retirement. Right? Um, they're creating a scenario. In fact, they're talking in the first day that they want to confirm his successor just as quickly as Republicans confirmed Amy Coney Barrett, just to really stick it to them. It's crazy. It's crazy to do that because you, you don't want Breyer to retire in the middle of the term. You want this to play out. You want Democrats surely want to make, well, first of all, really vet the nominee and not step in any problems. Two, they will want to actually win political points with this process, play it out over time, give something, give Biden something happy to talk about over the next few months, and then vote to confirm her when the, the term ends. Oh, and by the way, use the, the decisions that'll be coming out in, in the summer to put more wind in the sails of this nomination. So if they have any sense, they would play this out into the summer. Um, they might have to walk back what they were saying in that that exuberant first 12 hours where they said they were going to confirm his not his successor by by March, which is just crazy. Yeah. And I, as I said, I'm just I'm just confused, like, you know, the most important Supreme Court case since Windsor probably is coming down the pike uh, in July. If he retires in the middle of the term. Is his vote on that still? Does it stand? Have they already voted? I don't. I mean, no. He we, he's is, out, and and his successor would not be in in time. Right. So, so it would be an eight. It would be an eight, a vote of eight uh, under yeah, those unless, circumstances. Maybe they assume those. If they assume those cases are all lost causes anyway, right? Then I suppose they're not losing anything. But no, it doesn't make any sense to push Breyer out through uh, um, to push him out before the end of the term. Maybe he'll recalibrate the way he specifically phrases the timing of his retirement, I mm -hmm. guess is the, 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 I guess he hadn't, since he hadn't announced anything, I had heard that he was going to retire effective upon the completion of, of the term his, of, 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 of the, sorry, upon the confirmation of his successor. Huh. But now given everything that's transpired in the last 12 hours, I suppose he could rephrase his, his letter to say upon completion right. of this term and the confirmation of my successor. Right. right. 
Well, Adam White, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I know you have to go because you're about to be appointed a fellow by yet another institution uh, somewhere or other is my guess because it is a Thursday and that's what happens to you on a Thursday. To us, we just, you know, soldier along in our own boring way. Only one title. It's really sad. Well, thanks, John. I hope I didn't lawyer this thing up too much. <laughs> Uh, again, Adam White, thank you very much. And for Abe, Noah, and Christina, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.